Well, good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We thank you for the, the spring weather and the flowers that are blooming. We pray that you will send your angels and spirit to join us today, that we will be able to see you more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in our quarterly health and healing, and the title for this week's lesson is called The Power of Choice. And if somebody would read in Sunday's lesson the third paragraph that begins one thing. One thing, though, is certain. When God created humans, he made them moral beings, and in order for humans to be truly moral, they had to have moral freedom. In other words, they had to have the capacity to choose wrongly if they wanted to. If not, they didn't have that option. They really couldn't be free. What do you think about this, uh, about this paragraph? Why is it so critical that we have freedom to choose? She said we'd be robots if we didn't. What would be lost if, if we didn't have freedom to tr- choose? Say, oh yes, the ability to love. Yes, in the back. Pardon? An important component of our soul, which would be, can we name it? Would you say individuality? Volition, individuality, unique personhood. Yes, we would be nothing but machines or robots if we didn't have the freedom to choose. In the dark section in Sunday's lesson, it asks us to read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And this is what Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the next paragraph says, in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, we see the moral freedom given to both Adam and Eve. Why would God have warned them against eating of the tree unless they had been given the power of choice? Hence, we see that see perfect beings in a perfect environment allowed moral freedom. At the very foundation of human existence, the reality of our freedom has been made readily apparent. The reality of our freedom. Question for you guys. Why was the tree put in the garden? What was its purpose? For them to develop choices in freedom. For their development. Other thoughts, ideas. Was it there as a test? Was it there as a toxin? Last week we talked about the genomic model. And some people are theorizing and putting forth this concept that the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil had a, had a bioweapon within it. And that when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it caused genetic um, mutations to occur. And this is why God warned them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is what, what sin is all about and how we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity. And it's passed down from one to another because, because in that tree there was something genetically harmful in that tree. Let me, let me read to you a, a paragraph from Education, a book called Education, page 25. It says, Your eyes shall be opened, the enemy has said. Ye will be as God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3, 5. Their eyes were indeed open, but how sad the opening. The knowledge of evil, the curse of sin, was all that the transgressors gained. Now listen to this next part. There was nothing poisonous in the fruit itself. And the sin was not merely in yielding to appetite. How many times did you hear it was a temptation of appetite? It wasn't a temptation of appetite. No. 
It was distrust of God's goodness, disbelief of His word, and rejection of His authority that made our first parents transgressors. According to this writer, what made our first parents transgressors? What was it? The fruit? Distrust. Distrust of God. It says, and that brought into the world a knowledge of evil. It was from this that opened the door to every species of falsehood and error. Every species of falsehood and error. Would that include genetic errors? Every species. So what opened the door to all the biological defects that we experience today? Distrust. Distrust in God. That was the door that opened. Yeah. And then this is out of a, a magazine called Signs of the Times, February 13, 1896. And it says, There was nothing poisonous in the fruit of the tree of knowledge itself. Nothing that would cause death in partaking of it. The tree had been placed in the garden to test their loyalty to God. Hear that? That pretty much, to me, shoots down this whole gen- genomic idea that there was something harmful in the, in the tree. What do you think about the idea of the test of loyalty? Do you like that idea? No? Here's another one, and then, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, Conflict and Courage, page 13. Our first parents, though created innocent and holy, were not be placed beyond the possibility of wrongdoing. They were to enjoy communion with God and with holy angels, but before they could be re- rendered eternally secure, their loyalty must be tested. At the very beginning of man's existence, a check was placed upon the desire for self-indulgence, the fatal passion that lay at the foundation of Satan's fall. What was the foundation of Satan's fall? Self-indulgence or selfishness. The tree of knowledge, which stood near the tree of life in the midst of the garden, was to be a test of the obedience, faith, and love of our first parents. While permitted to eat freely of every other tree, they were forbidden to taste of this on pain of death. They were also to be exposed to the temptations of Satan. But if they endured the trial, they would finally be placed beyond his power to enjoy perpetual favor with God. Why was the tree placed in the garden? To test their loyalty to God. How do we make sense of the tree placed in the garden to test them in light of James chapter 1, 13, which says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So... How do we make sense of this idea that the Bible tells us God doesn't tempt anyone, but the tree was placed there to test their loyalty? Why would God need to uh, test anybody? He's all-knowing. So another question, why would God need to test them? He all he knows. He knows what's going to happen. Then from the beginning, what's the point of the test? Why do we test kids in school? Do we know how much they know before we test them? Isn't the testing of our kids in school giving them an opportunity to demonstrate how well they've applied themselves and how much they know? Isn't that the purpose of the test? So we know whether they've achieved a certain level that they can move on from grade to grade. Isn't that the purpose of testing the kids? So... There's also the, the quality of testing what is in something, which is testing the quality of metal. Okay, so testing the quality of metal. Or when you go to the lab and get a lab test, you know the old saying, I had to study really hard for my urine test? Okay? <laughs> I didn't have to study for that one. But there's testing of that kind, testing the quality of something. We test it. Is that what it was there for, to test them in that way? Character. Test their character development. Test their character development. Yes, in the back. If you have, if God gave us freedom but gave us no way to disobey him, we actually have freedom. Uh, what do you think? If God says you're free, but there's no place you could actually disobey them, are you actually free? Yes. Um, the astronauts, they lose a lot of bone mass because they're not 
testing them. They're not uh, using their muscles and their bones. And so they lose, just like maybe we, if we weren't tested, we wouldn't be so strong. Do you like that? So it was somehow to strengthen them. I, I, like, I like a lot of these theories. Um, some, some people have pointed out that the tree was placed there as a protection. Because Satan could only have access to them at the tree. If they didn't go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then the rest of the garden, they, unlike us, we can be harassed pretty much anywhere on earth. Okay. Once Adam fell, Satan got dominion. He could harass us all over the place. But as long as they were loyal, Satan could only harass them at the tree, so it was put there as a protection. I think there's truth in that, but I don't think it's the ultimate truth. I think there's a bigger truth. Then God was being tested to, or that proved being tested that He actually would give them the choice of the two kingdoms. She said, "Was God being tested whether He would really give them freedom to make a choice?" You had a hand up. Yeah, I was just thinking that it, it was put there in order to give them a choice, so that they would know that they had freedom, and so that they had options whether or not they wanted to serve God or not. What happens, and I'm going to pull together the thoughts that you guys were saying, because I think you all have, have been very, very right on. What happens when we make choices? What happens to us? Does it change us when we make choices? Um, Develops character. Would it be important for Adam and Eve to exercise their own minds, to think through the temptations, to make their own choice to say no? Would that be important for them to do? Uh, parents, I want you to think, parents in this room, about your kids. Is there a difference, is there a difference in, in creating an atmosphere in which your children are never in a situation for which they can choose to do wrong? You have protected them and sheltered them and they never have temptation presented to them so they never choose wrong because they're never in a position. Or is that different from your child being faced with temptation and your child choosing to say no? Are those two things different? Which, would, which do you want to see, which, which would you prefer? Why do you want the second one? Why do you want your child at some point when they're ready to be faced with temptation and say no? Why? It builds their character. It builds character. Every choice we make reacts upon us. And notice out of the the continuation, I read that quote earlier about the, the tree being placed there as a test. Here's the very next paragraph from the same book, Conflict and Courage. It says, God might have created man without the power to transgress his law. He might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit. But in that case, man would not be a free moral agent, but a mere automaton, a machine. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary, but forced. There could have been no development of character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charges of God's arbitrary rule. So, the tree was placed there for their good so that they could advance, they could develop, they could grow, they could face the issues, they could weigh them out, they could make choices that would change them in healthy ways. Yes? I want to go back to your parenting metaphor, because as a parent, I pray every day that that God will put a spiritual and physical hedge around them, because they will say yes to temptation sometimes, and they will have horrible consequences that may dog them the rest of their, their lives, and Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, in response to his disciples' request, teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. <laughs> yes. But it's better not to go there in the first place. Like, why go into the bar or the nightclub? Um, Do you think that is the primary source of temptation? 
Well, yes, the environment absolutely affects your choices. So I would rather my friend, my my kids be in an Adventist school or in an environment where they're not exposed to uh, the wrong companions, etc. Until such time as they've developed the capacity to understand the right from the wrong, the left from the right, discern, and then able to make the decision to say no. One of the great failings in, in Christian education and Christian rearing of our kids is that we shelter them so much that by the time they hit adulthood and leave home, they are not prepared to be able to handle the real world, and they often go out into wild living because they're not able... Look at the heads nodding all over this room. Heads nodding all over this room. I mean, there must have been about 50, 70 parents nodding their heads right now. Yes. And so, no, you're exactly right. You have an, a wonderful point that is exactly right, that we need to protect our kids while they're not capable of handling certain levels of temptation. On a physical analogy, we wouldn't let a little child or a, 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 a child drive a car because they're not capable to handle that responsibility, yet we protect them from that until such time they've developed the ability to handle it. But at some point, we, we put them in a position to handle that responsibility, knowing it's possible they might actually get in a wreck one day. But we still let them do it because they have to develop that skill. And same thing, too. Paul says in, in Romans that, that every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14. And so there is no development of character. At the same time, look at all these pastors who probably shouldn't have these one-on-one counseling sessions with women who are in trouble in their marriage. Because there are many stories, and I hope their characters develop by the time they're 40, 50, 60, but it still happens. So- yeah, that's bad judgment. So that's a good example of bad judgment. That's a very good example of bad judgment. In that environment, you know, they take their wife and counsel with this, this attractive divorcee or whatever together. So I, I think we can't exclude the influence of the environment, and I will shut up. Thank you. Well, James chapter 1, and, and we're going to, and we're, I think these are great comments. No, environment plays a critical role. I did a lecture here a few, a few months ago about, about human sexuality and, and, and sexual development, and, and I talked about the influence of media. And the more media adolescents watch and kids watch, the, 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 the lower and lower and lower, younger and younger they have sex. And so media has a tremendous influence. There's no question about that. I'm not arguing that. Um, but at some point... Each one of us has to make decisions for ourselves or else we don't develop character. And we have to make the choices until we actually are faced with temptation on some level and we say no. It, we're, not, we're still not solidified against it. Yes? Remember, Job was tested not only for his character but for his reputation. Yes. Yes, excellent point. James chapter 1 says, No one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Each one of us, and we're going to explore this as we go through, the greatest temptations we face are through our own carnal natures. It's from within. Now, the external environment inflames those things within us. And so we want to protect that inflammation. But we also have a promise in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Say it with me. No temptation has taken you, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able, but will provide an escape that you might be able to bear it. Do we believe that promise? Yes. So when temptation comes, we can know that there's always an escape for us. We won't be tempted beyond which we're able. Yes. The last passage that you did mention the arbitrariness of the tree, uh, the difference between the trees. Um, and I've always thought about, or, and you may be going to get to this, um, the arbitrariness of the Sabbath. Uh, 24 hours, 
uh, on the seventh day to worship as opposed to, and you hear this argument, well, as long as you worship one day. So I've, I've always thought about that connection. Both seem to be sort of arbitrary type uh, rules. Well, okay. Notice the key word there is seem. One of the allegations that Satan makes against God is that God is arbitrary. Arbitrary means that someone in power can do what they want because they have the power to do it. There are no reasons other than their, their desire. They want to do it, they impose it, they do it. God is not arbitrary. It's a lie. The tree was not arbitrary. We've already identified two purposes. Purpose one, to protect. Purpose two, for their development. Therefore, it's not arbitrary. Sabbath is also not arbitrary. And I wish we had time to go into that today, but that's a 30-minute discussion. And we don't have time for that today. But I can tell you, the Sabbath is also not arbitrary. There are reasons for the Sabbath that were inherent in its purpose and creation at the time in history in which the Sabbath came into existence that can never be uh, disconnected from, from its, its uh, creation. And uh, maybe at some, some time we can, we can talk about that. But I want to come back to this power of choice. In your brain, your neurons and your white cells, the glia of your brain, produce proteins uh, called neurotrophic factors. BDNF, brain-derived, brain-made. It Neurotrophic means makes your neurons healthy. When, this, when these proteins are available, the neurons you have will branch out, they'll connect, they'll make, you can learn faster, the brain will make new neurons, new brain cells under the influence of these proteins. But interestingly enough, this protein brain-derived neurotrophic factor does not come off the DNA as brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It comes off the DNA as a precursor protein called pro-BDNF or pro-brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now, why BDNF is fertilizer for your neurons. If it hits a neuron, a dendrite, an axon, it will make it healthier, it will branch out, it will connect new neurons, the whole circuit grows stronger. If pro-BDNF, the precursor protein, hits the same dendrite, axons, neuron, it will kill it. It's weed killer for neurons. So what comes off the DNA is the weed killer. What you want, and if you want to grow and think and have your neurons expand, you want BDNF. What determines whether you get the weed killer or the fertilizer is an enzyme. If the enzyme is there, it will cleave the pro-BDNF as it comes off the DNA into the BDNF and you get this fertilizer and the circuit grows stronger. What determines whether you have that enzyme available or not? Choices. <laughs> Choices, he said. Choices. Activity of the neural circuit itself. If the neural circuit is firing, then it produces this enzyme. And the enzyme will cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF, which makes that neural circuit grow stronger. If the neural circuit is idle or dormant, not being used, it stops producing the enzyme. Pro-BDNF comes along and prunes the circuit back. So you're in high school. You're taking foreign language. You're taking Spanish. Brute force memory, memorizing words, one at a time by brute force memory. Que pasa? Okay? And you're forcing new electrical energy on new forming connections. As you practice every day, you're, you're forming this enzyme. It's cleaving pro-BDNF into BDNF, so that neural circuit is going to sprout connections faster. So as the days go by, you get a little quicker at this. And you keep practicing, and pretty soon your vocabulary expands. As the BDNF is produced, and you have more expansion of the circuit. And then syntax, your, your pronunciation and syntax and use of words are expanding as the whole network continues to expand, as BDNF is, is continuing to bring new neurons in. And then... You graduate high school, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken this language in 20 years, and the church is having a mission trip to a Spanish-speaking country, and your spouse says, oh, my wife took Spanish in high school. She's going, shut up, shut up. <laughs> Why is she saying shut up? Because <laughs> she can speak like three words, baño. Okay? Yeah. What happened to all those things? She, neural circuit was not being used. Pro-BDNF was coming in through these years, pruning it back, pruning it back, pruning it back. 
the choices we make actually determines which neural circuits are fired. The neural circuits that are fired grow stronger. The ones we choices we make keep certain circuits idle. They will be pruned back. But here's where it gets very fascinating. We've done put people in scanners, scanners of, that are functional scanners. We can actually see activity in the brain in real time. And we have put a keyboard in their lap. And we ask them to play a piece of music. And we see which neural circuits are firing while they're playing this piece of music. Then we take away the keyboard. We ask them to imagine playing the piece of music. We put EMG monitor, little tiny electrodes, in the muscles of the, of the arms that control the fingers so we can see whether there's actually any muscle contraction going on. No muscle contraction going on. So we're not sending signals down through the motor cortex to activate the muscles. They're not being activated. And when they imagine playing the same piece of music, guess what? Same neural circuits fire. And what is this? what's the implication of this? We can take, and we can take criminals, recidivists, we can take pedophiles, and we can lock them up in prison and control behavior so they cannot act out uh, unhealthy behavior. Can we control what they think? And as long as they imagine those unhealthy behaviors, do it in their imagination, they're still firing the same unhealthy circuits. And they might spend 20 years in prison, but if they're imagining those unhealthy things in their mind, then that unhealthy circuit goes stronger and stronger and stronger. This is why the scripture says in, in, in Corinthians that we are to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. So we are each responsible for the choices we make. The choices we make actually react upon us and transform us and change us in character and in neural circuitry. So if you have a, a habit pattern that you're struggling with, if you... Uh, through God's grace, through the power of His Spirit, make choices to cease and desist and also change the thinking about that. Over the course of time, your brain will rewire. Will rewire itself. I've got some more evidence of this as we go through the class today. Yes, question. So the only way it's going to really work, great controversy is going to really work, is if we choose individually and radiate out in our daily lives. There's no question about it. Yep. We have to choose individually to partake. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, is this a passive or an active thing? It's an active thing. It's not, it's not real blood and flesh either. It's unless we partake of truth, unless we partake of his character, unless we partake of a relationship with him. Yes? Um, if you create those neural pathways like learning Spanish and then go 20 years without doing it, is it easier to come back to it? Great point. Absolutely. Even though there's been a lot of pruning of that circuit, there does remain like a skeleton, a remnant in your, in your uh, neurobiology that you can build from so you can, you can refresh that and learn much more quickly having, ha- having learned it at one point than you can having never learned it. So that's a great point. That works also with bad habits. That absolutely works with bad habits, too. Uh, people who have been victorious over an addiction, over a habit for 20 years, they can go back into it, and they are really addicted very, very quickly again. Yeah, absolutely. First paragraph in Wednesday's lesson says this, and I want you all to think about this. The consequences of life's choices affect not just ourselves, but our children as well. Our influence is so much greater than we imagine, especially on our children. And this week, I read this to Ashley, and Ashley wanted to share how this has been true in her life. Ashley, come on up. Ashley, how old are you? I'm 14. And um, where are you living now? With you. With me, that's right. <laughs> and are you, and uh, are you here by yourself? Did you come to live with me by yourself? No, um, my brother and I. And how old is your brother? He's 11. He's 11. Philip, wave. There's Philip, the brother. Okay. And why is it you're living with us? Because 
my mom. She uh, couldn't take care of us because she needs some bad places. And over the last um, eight years, how many homes have you lived in? Around six, possibly seven. And um, when did you know, when did you come to live with us? Um, last Saturday. When did you know you were going to come to live with us? Last Saturday. <laughs> how was that? It was pretty um, traumatic. What, tell me, why was it traumatic? Because I did not know I was coming to live with you. Yeah, because we're bad people? No, you're good people. <laughs> it's just, um, I live in Georgia, on the other side of Atlanta, and, um, I have a lot of friends there, and I just, I didn't get to say goodbye. How has your relationship with adults been in your life? Pretty disappointing. Can you tell us why? Because they always make the promise that they would take care of us, and they never did have you ever found yourself in the position where you were taking care of the adults in your life? Yes. Do you want to tell us about any of that? Um, when my mom, when she wasn't doing too well, I would take care of her, take care of my brother, my grandma, my grandpa, when I lived with them, etc. Would they? Would you find that at times they would be uh, incapacitated? They weren't able to be aware of what was going on around them and take care of themselves? Right. That's why I take care of them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, how easy is it for you to trust adults? Not very easy at all. Is there anything you'd like to say to the parents in the room today? Take care of your children because right now they need you. You need them. Can we thank Ashley? Thank you, Ashley. Do you see how blessed Christy and I have been? that we have the privilege of, of taking care of, of Ashley and Philip. What a joy. And, and they've already brightened our home. And they're going to be living with us, um, as far as we can tell. How long? For a while. For a while. <laughs> yes, for a while. Thoughts, questions. Do parents' choices affect their kids? Sure. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, when I went to college, I, was, uh, I had to administer take a class of Eastern religion. And, of course, I rolled my eyes and I thought, oh, my, no, mom, do I have to do this? But it was one of the best classes I ever had an opportunity to take because, and I feel Christians don't hit it the way they did. We're kind of lacking in there. Everything is about the ripple effect. Everything you do, good or bad. It's the karma. Yes, it's going to hit all these people. Anything. It's my body, I'll smoke joints, or it's, and it's, not, it's like, no, the ripple effect is just... Well, let's see if we can't expand on that. Our decisions not only affect us, but affect our kids. We've just got an example of how two children's lives have been affected by the decisions of their parents. Let's go even further. You mentioned smoking. That's my body. I'll do what I want. Did you know that the choices you make and the lifestyle that you live alters your gene expression? And then that altered gene expression you will pass along to your kids when you have kids. So you're not just altering you, you're altering your kids as well. And, and this is very interesting because the science is documented. So those of us who get our notes, there's, a, there's several scientific articles I've included into the notes this week. One is about how 
um, our genes being changed through environmental experiences or passed down from generation to generation, usually three to four generations down, those gene expression changes are passed. Both healthy changes, you make healthy changes in your life, you make healthy gene expression. Actually, there was a study done of men with prostate cancer in San Diego two years ago, and they took cancer cells and they looked at which gene, how their genes were turned on and how their genes were turned off. Then they put them on a vegan diet. Vegan diet for 12 weeks. It's three months. Three months of a vegan diet. They took cancer cells again and looked at the gene expression. In just 12 weeks of a vegan diet, 30 genes had changed expression in this way. Cancer-inducing genes had been turned off, and cancer-suppressing genes had been turned on. Altered gene expression by a healthy lifestyle change. So if we live healthy, healthy lifestyles, our genes are expressed differently. We live unhealthy lifestyles, they're expressed differently. When we have children, we pass them not, not along. Not just the genes, but the instructions on how those genes are to be expressed. We pass those instructions along as well. And so as we change ourselves, we pass along those changes. Now, interestingly enough, science is showing this, but this is written in 1905 in a book called Ministry of Healing. Maybe you've heard of it. This is what it says. What parents are, that to a great extent the children will be. The physical conditions of the parents, their dispositions and appetites, their mental and moral tendencies are to a greater and lesser degree reproduced in their children. Anybody seen that to be true? You ever look in your kid and you go, oh man, my mother used to tell me, she's right over there, I hope you have one just like you one day. (laughs) That's what she used to say. Yes, yes, she did, yeah. (laughs) Some of you can relate to that, can't you? What page was that? That was page 371. Mind character, first mind character personality, page 139 says, the nobler aims... The higher the mental and spiritual endowments and the better developed and the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment they give to their children. It's just talking about this genetic passing along. We can pass along just not to genes, but how those genes are coded or instructed. Uh, they did an interesting uh, analysis of children born to women in the Netherlands during World War II. In the Netherlands during World War II, food was very scarce. Average caloric intake was 500 calories a day. 500 calories a day. The average adult is between 1,500 to 2,500 calories a day. And they looked at the kids born to mothers during the time that mom was getting 500 calories a day, and they were inside mom being developed you know, embryo- embryologically during that time, gestation. And they compared them to the siblings of the same parents who were born when there was plenty of food. And the kids born during the time of starvation had altered gene expression compared to their siblings from the same parents such that they had higher risks of obesity, diabetes, and metabolic problems. So diet during pregnancy, even if it's not someone's fault, those those women, they, they weren't choosing to eat these things. It was a situation forced upon them, still alters what happens to our kids. We pass along these things. Children who are abused, physically abused, sexually abused, have altered gene expression. The abuse doesn't just alter their, maybe give them bruises because they're getting smacked around. Doesn't just alter their belief about whether they can trust adults or not. Doesn't just alter the way they think about themselves. It actually alters the genes that are being turned on. I've included the scientific article in the notes which talks about a gene called NR3C1, which is a gene which, which, which controls or influences stress modulation, how we handle stress. 
Kids that are abused have this gene suppressed compared to kids who aren't abused so that as they go through life and as they go into adulthood, they are much more anxious, worried, uh, uncertain, fearful, and they have a harder time calming themselves than kids who come from homes that weren't abusive. This makes them at higher risks for mental illnesses like depression and anxiety disorders and higher risks for physical illness because of the stress cascade, the constant stress hormones, physical illnesses like ulcers, heart disease, uh, dyslipidemia, and so forth. All because of what happens to uh, environment during, during childhood. Children of mothers who suffer from depression have a higher rates of mental illness if the mother is not treated to remission. If the mother with depression gets treated to remission so the depression goes away, those children don't have higher risks. So it's not just the fact the mother has genetic risk for depression. It's not just the fact that the mother had depression. It's the fact that if that depression is not treated to remission and she doesn't get well, then those kids have higher rates of mental illness. But if mother gets well, then the kids don't have a higher risk. What does that mean? That the environment, the influence, the attitude, the availability of mother has a huge impact on the developing psychology and the mental well-being of the kids. In animal studies, they show that pups whose mothers are attentive and lick the pups frequently have altered brain development such that they have calmer fear centers. The amygdalas are calmer. They're not, they're not as irritable. They don't fire as quickly. They're not as frightening. They don't startle as easy. They're calmer animals, and they have less anxiety, and they socialize with the other animals better. But pups who didn't have a mother who groomed them, didn't give them a lot of licking and attention, those pups had higher anxiety, had more fear, didn't socialize well, were skittish and, and, and isolated themselves. Now, when they took the pups from mothers who didn't have any you know, very good social skills, didn't groom, didn't lick their... And they took those pups away from those moms and put them with, with moms who would groom them and lick them. Those pups developed just like the pups from the moms who did groom. They didn't have all that fear and anxiety. Our experiences in childhood alter us. Alter us. Now, some of us haven't had wonderful childhoods. We've been impacted. The good news, the good news is that the difference between us and animals, we have something right behind our forehead called a prefrontal cortex. We have the ability to reason, to think, to problem solve. Animals don't have this. So even though we may have had traumatic childhood, we can actually wrestle through these issues. We can come to a faith relation with Christ. We can experience divine healing and neural circuits can rewire. So we can actually experience deliverance from some of these things, but our childhood experiences may have put some additional hurdles in the way that we have to overcome and work through questions about any of this aren't we fast isn't it fascinating how we've made yes. yeah it's fascinating questions any any questions can the environment affect you i mean you, you say that a pregnant woman who um has a restricted cohort yeah yes uh let's say she um has to take care of an ailing family member that is in extreme depression. Is the child affected by that? Uh, it depends on the mother's reaction. Look, small children, if, and if you, I mean, you guys have know this, small children, if you're out somewhere and you hear a loud bang, boom, car backfires, what does the small children instantly do? Look to the parent. They go like this. Okay? And if the parent laughs the kid starts laughing. If the parent looks frightened, the kid starts crying in terror. 
The kids at young ages filter reality through the parent. So it depends on the parent's reaction to what it is they're dealing with. If they're dealing with this and they come home burdened, exhausted, negative, griping, complaining, it's not fair, miserable, unhappy, always down, always irritable, don't have time for the kids anymore, blah, will that affect them? Sure it will. If they have a different attitude, then the kids will be insulated from that stress. Yes? As I listen to what you're saying, I get the impression that we should wait until after we're past any rebellious stage whatsoever before we have any children. You know, there's wisdom in that. There is no question there is wisdom in that. You know, they make us get driver's license to drive a car, but they don't make us get licensed to have kids. Which is a bigger responsibility? You have to have a certain set of certain level of competence in order to drive a car. You don't have to be competent at all to have a kid. And if you do what I do, you see the level of incompetence out there. Yes. How long is it going to be before they teach this stuff in grade school? Amen. Yeah. Good question. Good question. This is why, though, we as parents can teach our children these things. This is a purpose of healthful living. This is a purpose of learning how to, to govern self. This is a purpose of, of protecting our kids from TV and the un- unhealthy influences. Absolutely. This is a, but at some point, we teach them these things, just like brushing your teeth. We teach our kids right now to brush their teeth so they won't get cavities. But at some point, the kid has to make that their own, and they have to choose to brush their teeth themselves. Or else when they leave home, they go, I don't have to do this. Mom's not watching. I don't have to do it anymore. So at some point, it has to be owned. By them, they have to make that choice for themselves, and so this is this is the goal: protect them, but teach them so that they want it. They want it to be part of who they are, and they have to make those choices. In Tuesday's lesson, top paragraph says, "However much human nature changed after the fall of Adam and Eve, as humans we still have the power of choice. We still have free will. What we do with that free will is really entirely up to us. We can surrender to God and obey Him, or we can choose to go our own sinful way." What is the actual choice we have? Do we have the choice? Did we? Did any of you have the choice to not be a sinner? We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. HIV-infected man and woman get together, have a child born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? Did the child have a choice in that situation? We are born from a sinful mother, sinful father, and back, 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 all the way to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a choice. The rest of us did not have a choice to not be sinners. So don't throw that guilt on you. I'm a sinner. Oh, I'm horrible. I'm a worm. I'm no good. I'm rotten. God knows you didn't do anything wrong to be born a sinner. It's not our choice. HIV-infected baby, born HIV-infected, didn't do anything wrong. Does the baby still have the condition that if unremedied will kill it? It's not our fault. We're born in this situation. Do we still have a condition that if unremedied will result in our eternal death? Yes. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not die forever, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Has God provided remedy for this condition? So HIV-infected baby, not his fault, got a condition, grows up, now he's 13 years old, there's a remedy offered for free. Free. If you refuse the remedy, will that be your fault? That's our only choice. Accept remedy or not accept remedy. That's our choice. Very simple. And as we accept remedy, that remedy means we, we meet with our doctor, we follow his treatment plan, we follow his prescriptions, we apply to our life the, the therapeutic modalities our, our heavenly physician has, described, has prescribed for us to follow. And as we do that, what happens? We are transformed. We are renewed. We are regenerated. 
we experience healing. Do we have the power in our own strength to choose against our carnal nature? Recognize that. I'm not putting a work system on you guys where you have to work and overcome your own inherent tendencies. We can't do it. Listen to this comment out of... Signs of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, the serpent is Satan. I'll put enmity. What's enmity mean? Hostility. I'll put hostility between... The woman represents humanity. The serpent represents Satan. God says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the and human beings. Going on. The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate. That would be Satan. And at war with God. And if God had not interfered, interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on united opposition against the God of hosts. There is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. Both are evil through transgression of the law of God. And evil will always league against good. Fallen men and fallen angels enter into desperate companionship. Did you know that, the, that we, this idea that you hear philosophically floated around, we just need to develop the good in us. We're naturally good. We don't need God. We just need to develop the good. It's a lie. The good that you see in any human heart, whether they believe in Christ or they don't believe in Christ, if they're kind, if they're loving, if they're gracious, if they're selfless, if they care about others, that good is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their life. Amen. All goodness comes from God. We are not naturally that way. Our natural, born inherent desire is for self. Self first, everybody else second. Me, me, me. That's the, that's the infection. And God is working to change us to love, love, love. I'll write my law. Law of love on your hearts and minds. So why do we even have a choice at all? Why do we even... We're talking about choice today. Why do we even have a choice? Since Adam fall, fell, why do we even have a choice? Yes? Couldn't you say that choice is the essence of personhood? It's the very essence of individuality without choice? That's true. But why do we have one after Adam fell? Because God interfered. Not natural. Adam had choice by his creation and design. But once he fell, he lost his choice to choose right. He was only evil all the way through. We don't have natural desires for good in our heart. The only reason we have a freedom to choose is because the Holy Spirit interferes in our hearts and minds, puts a desire for good, enlightens our mind, convicts our heart, draws, woos, recreates, regenerates. We have a divine agency working to deliver us from our natural state. Thoughts about that? Do you think we have inherently the ability to make that choice without God's intercessions or interventions in our hearts and minds? No, but I like the word intercession better than interferes. Why? Well, because interferes to me is a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. It makes it sound negative. Like it's almost like God's fortunate. You see a drug dealer selling drugs to your three-year-old kid, and you go out and you interfere with that deal. Is that a negative thing? <laughs> no, your interference. Is your interference a negative thing? No. So it depends on what you see being interfered with. God is interfering with the principalities and the powers of darkness. He is interfering with our carnal natures, our selfish desires. He is interfering with the, with the progression of sin. 
If you had a child with uh, pneumonia and they were very, very sick, and you gave antibiotics to interfere with the natural progression of what pneumonia would do, is that interference bad? So it depends on what we're interfering with. God is interfering with what's destructive and what's evil for our good. Yes? Is this image He asked, is this, this enmity he put in us a desire for good or our conscience? Um, what do you all think? Is conscience something that was given to us after the fall? Or is man made in the beginning with a conscience? Yes? I have a friend who claims to be an atheist, but he also claims that he can live a good life just like a Christian. and be kind to others and do good things. And so is that his conscience? That's... Can, it, can somebody who does not believe in God live a good moral life? The scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12, those who do not know the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are a law unto themselves, their conscience bearing witness that the law has been written upon their heart. What's the new covenant? Writing the law on our heart. And the question you have to ask this atheist friend of yours is, you don't believe in God? No. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. And let him describe him to, to you. And as he describes you this God, I've done this many times. 100% so far I've been able to say, good for you, because I don't believe in him either. Because they describe some horrible creature, which really is Satan. What they're describing is Satan. Evil, arbitrary, capricious, severe, somebody who'll torture, somebody who'll execute, somebody who'll punish, somebody who'll burn people in hell, somebody who doesn't care when kids are molested and abused, somebody who's, I mean, they'll describe this horrible being. And you go, good, I don't believe in him either. He's not the God I know. So he's right. So people who reject that God are actually closer to God than the people who go to church every week believing and worshiping a God like that. Remember what Jesus said? You will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. Whose name are they doing this in? Christ. These are Christians, not Buddhists and Muslims. And he says, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You can go to church every week, claim Christ, but have such a distorted concept of who God is that you're not even on his side. Yes? Picture this guy when he gets up in the great get, getting up morning there, and he looks around. What am I doing here? And God, smile on God's face. Oh, by the way, you do belong here. Zechariah actually prophesies about this. Said at the uh, new heaven and new earth, there will be people that will look to Christ and say, what are the marks on your hand? Now, why are they asking what are the marks? Are we going to ask in this room what are the marks on your hand? No. no, we know, don't we? So if they're asking, what does that tell us? And Christ says, these are the wounds I received at the house of my friends. Does that just give you chills? The wounds that I received at the house of my friends. I went to my friends and they killed me. Wow. But he still regards us as friends. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Can I come back to you? You talk about choice. Yes. If I don't have a choice, then I'm a slave. If I have a choice, I'm free. Right. And I even have a choice to not choose. Right. At least I have a choice. And you only have that choice. My point, though, is once Adam sinned, you only have that choice because God decided to intervene. Because God decided not to abandon us and leave us to our own condition. Because God decided to intercede. Because God decided to put himself in between. And he intercedes in three places. God's intercessions... The lie of Satan is one member of the Godhead intercedes with another member of the Godhead holding back his anger and wrath. Please, Father, don't kill him. I shed my blood, my blood, Father, my blood. That's a big lie. 
God intercedes in three places. The scripture is very clear. We read one. Enmity between you and the woman. That is God interceding in the heart and mind of mankind to put a, a, a dissonance between us and evil. They put a desire for good. He's interceding in our heart and mind. Second place. God intercedes with a hedge of protection against the principalities and powers of darkness. The chariots around, around Elisha and, and his servant. Um, the hedge of protection around Job. Holding back uh, the four winds of strife. We, we see God's interceding with, with, with the powers of evil. And he interceded the most critical place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He interceded with the destructiveness of sin itself in order to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14, destroy death and bring life and immortality to light, 2 Timothy 1.10, and destroy the devil's work, 1 John 3.8. So Christ interceded in the actual process or of destructiveness of sin itself in order to stop it reverse it, and destroy sin. So yes, God intercedes. But the devil wants you to think God is interceding with God because God can't be trusted because he's mad, angry, and wrathful is going to get you. It's a lie. Um, next paragraph, this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 145. I'm talking about Abraham's time. Polygamy had become so widespread that it ceased to be regarded as sin, but it was no less a violation of the law of God and was fatal uh, to the sacredness and peace of the family relation. Abraham's marriage with Hagar resulted in evil, not only to his own household, but to future generations. I want you to want to talk about this. Did Abraham make the choice to take Hagar before or after God called him? Did Abraham make the choice to take Hagar before or after God recognized Abraham as righteous? So Abraham is recognized as righteous. We got it in Hebrews chapter 4. I mean, it's Romans chapter 4. Regarded, recognized, accounted as righteous by God. Yet he chooses to take Hagar. Did this make him unrighteous? No longer on God's side. Did this disqualify him from being the progenitor of God's people? The, the father of many nations. Was he no longer the father of many nations because he chose to break God's law in this way? Or was he still the father of many nations, still God's man, still considered righteous? How can you be considered righteous if, you're, if you commit sin? Do we find Abraham repenting of Hagar? I, I didn't see that recorded there. I think he was remorseful. I think it caused him a lot of grief. I think he was really frustrated and he finally gave her the boot. But he asked God to protect her, didn't he? Yeah. And God said he'd bless her and bless that child. Hmm. Do we have a record of God informing Abraham that it was sin for him to take Hagar? We have a record informing him that the promised child wasn't going to come from Hagar. We have that record. Hmm. So, does choosing to sin cancel our salvation? There was a few mumbling no's. No. Maybe not. I don't know about that one. Hmm. What is the key to salvation? Perfect performance or perfect heart attitude towards God? A longing for healing. A heart that when we fall short, our heart is grieved like Paul. Who will save me? Oh, what a wretched man and I. Who will save me from this body of death? I can't stand being this way. What is wrong with me? The, the, the saved man has a heart that wants to live like Christ in a body and mind that is not yet fully transformed to be like Christ. And thus, 
even though we have a heart and mind that wants to be like Christ, we have conditioned responses. We have habit patterns. We have emotional weaknesses. We have neurobiologic defects. And because of that, we sometimes find ourselves slipping, falling, and tripping up. And when we do, the converted man is grieved. Oh, I hate, I've misrepresented you, Lord. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? I, I, if I could go back and undo I would undo it. The saved man is remorseful, heart-stricken, grief-stricken over the mistake. The unsaved man, however, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. If you'd have never brought her in the garden, I would have never taken that. I didn't, well, me? Huh? Wasn't me, it was them. Unsaved man, no remorse, justification, externalization, projection, blame game, d- defending themselves, creating lies and distortions to hide behind so they can justify it, they can do it again. They even get gratification. The unsaved man enjoys and relishes the sin. Yes. I disagree with you just wondering if you're speaking of Adam as that unsaved man who said the woman thou gave us when did he change? When when he changed from being that unsaved man? I don't know the timeline. At some point in time he made a change to humble himself and, and confess before God and take ownership over the fact he made that choice. But initially he didn't. He wasn't isn't it just like our God to not say, Well, there you screwed up, so let's just take your life and wash out right there. Exactly. Exactly. The last paragraph talks about, um, in, this, in this lesson, it says, In the end, we are free to choose the Lord or free to choose against Him. There is no middle ground. We are on one side or the other. This doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes or fall. Look at Abraham, for instance. It means instead we must purpose in our hearts to seek to do God's will, whatever the cost. We must purpose in our hearts to choose what is right. And what is right is what God commands us to do. One thing that we should never forget is that if we fall, if we make the wrong choice, God does not cast us off. I think that's a great point, that that point right there. If we make mistakes, if we slip and fall, does God cast us off? Did God cast off Adam? No. Did God cast off Judas? No. No, God doesn't cast off anybody. Do we cast ourselves off? Yes. Yes, and we tempted to think that we're no good, that we're rotten, that God couldn't possibly love us. What do you think about this sentence in the middle of the paragraph? And I really want to point it out here. It says, we have to purpose in our heart to do what is right, and what is right is what God commands us to do. My wife and I were at a church one Sabbath, visiting, and uh, the opening prayer, our senior pastor gets up to the pulpit and prays. This is a, a very close, almost verbatim prayer. Dear God, we are here today. Not for the friendships to socialize with. Not for the special music. Not even to hear the sermon. We are here for one reason and one reason only. Because you have commanded us to be here. (laughs) I I kid you not. I kid you not. This was the, the, the prayer. Thoughts about that prayer. Are you here today? For one reason, and one reason only, because you've been commanded to be here. If the, did, you, did it warm your heart? Oh, wonderful Lord. No, but this is an example of a lot of the ways we were raised. Even in our schools, everything that we were taught, it was because that's what God commanded us to do. We do it because we want to please God, not because we love Him. Or because He's going to punish you? Exactly, because if we don't do it, we know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Are you, yeah. 
um, what happens inside a person who does what's right because they're commanded to? we got one minute, so I've got to read a couple. I wanted to kind of go on this, but here's out of Christ Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely, because he is required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are counted a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This leads us to do right because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to God. And then one more, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. Have parents ever seen that? Totalitarian, over... In fact, the the studies are very clear. If you want to help prevent your kids from having sex at an early age, you have to do several things to to minimize the likelihood. Restrict media influences. Communicate clearly and unequivocally your disapproval as a parent of premarital sex. And don't have an overly controlling home. An overly coercive and controlling home causes kids to rebel and have early sex. Science is very clear. That's very, this is what's saying right here, isn't it? Coercive control breeds rebellion. If you don't believe me, spouse has tried on your spouse. Tell your spouse, who, both sides, you can go either way, what they can wear. <laughs> you can't wear this. Uh, tell, start, take the checkbook and tell them that they have to, you can give them $100 to go grocery shopping, but they have to come back, bring the receipt, and show that they didn't keep a penny from you. And they can only buy what you put on the list. They can't buy anything that you didn't put on the list. And you're going to check that list to make sure they didn't disobey. What's going to happen to love in that relationship? It's going to destroy love, isn't it? This is what happens with coercive control. God gives us real freedom because he wants us to develop characters that we genuinely love him and genuinely love others. This is why every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. We have to weigh them out. And so, as I've said in here many times, I am not here to tell any of you what to think. I am here to get you to think. So you weigh it out for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the immense love that you have for us in your creation. We thank you for the way you run your universe, that you present truth in love, leave us free. That you are so patient and kind. When we mess up, you don't cast us off. You reach out in love to bring us back to you. Lord, fill our hearts with your love. Fill our hearts with your truth. Prepare us to live that life of loving you and loving others more than we love ourselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.